From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Nate McWilliams of Denver defied the odds. He was in the ICU within a day of going to the hospital for COVID and his wife Brenda's insistence. He's like, I'll be fine. I said, no, I said, we've got to go back to the hospital. He goes, I'm not going back. And I was like, well, you're not going to lay here on my couch and die. It would be the beginning of more than three months on extreme life-saving measures. And so I just say, well, thank God, because I was apparently gone. And so I just started taking one day at a time with the um, therapy so I can get better. Then more people in Colorado are moving to what's known as the Wildland Urban Interface, that delicate space between cities and untouched wilderness. We'll explore why that's causing concern for firefighters and first responders. Hi, I'm Kendall Smith, and I donated my car to CPR. It was fully packed and loaded, ready for our move to Basalt, and got as far as C-470, and the car started telling me it didn't want to go. And I thought, what better way to send it off than one last contribution to Colorado Public Radio? So I left it in Denver and got onto the website, filled out the form, and met them back in Denver a week later. It takes less than five minutes to get the donation process started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. This week, Colorado reached a milestone no one wanted to achieve. 10,000 people have died statewide because of COVID. Nate McWilliams of Denver was almost one of them. He was admitted to Swedish Hospital in June and was soon so sick, he was put in a heart and lung bypass machine often considered a last resort. That machine kept him alive for three months. His wife, Brenda Bailey, and his medical team soldiered on. And after nearly half a year in the hospital, Nate is now home. Nate McWilliams, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Brenda Bailey, hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Uh, Nate, you're home, but you're definitely not back to your old self. Can can you tell us how you're feeling? Pretty good. Uh, Scale 1 to 10, I'll probably say I'm around a 6, 6 and a half. Doing a lot of breathing and stuff. Yeah, Still. a lot of heavy breathing. Yeah, and, and I hear yeah. you're, you're hooked up to oxygen as well. Is that right? Correct. What do you remember about your time in the hospital before you kind of started getting better? Do you remember those months on those life-saving machines? I don't. I didn't even know I was in the hospital. <laughs> it mm. was so bad. It hit me so bad. When he came to, they asked him what month it was, and he said June. And I was like... They said, no, it's October. He's like, what? Like, he could not comprehend the fact that it was the end of October or the middle of October. How surreal that must have been, Nate. Oh, man. That was... But he recognized me when I walked in the room. They asked him who I was, and he was able to answer. Oh, that's good. Yeah. But he didn't he didn't know anything else. And, you know, I took him down into the ICU a couple times just to meet, you know, some of the people that took care of him. But he said, I don't remember any of these people. I was like, I know you don't, but I do. Like, you know, and, and they, they want to see him. They wanted to see him, you know, and and get to know him because, you know, of the relationships that I forged with them while he was sick. Hmm. Take us back to June, Brenda. Uh, You, unfortunately, remember everything, I understand. How did you know that Nate needed to go to the hospital? He he went on the 24th of June himself. 
they admitted him. They let him out the next day. When I picked him up from the hospital the 25th, he wasn't able to put together really a sentence, real lethargic. He came and sat down on the couch. Hours went by. He was just not, you know, coherent, not comprehending anything I was trying to say to him. I mean, was he coughing or was he having issues to, other than just being he, incoherent? He just, he, no, he wasn't really coughing too much. He was just, I guess, not getting enough air. So, which, you know, was making him have, you know, being the un, unresponsive per se. Mm. I mean, he was responsive, but he wasn't able to like put together a sentence. And then I checked his oxygen and I said, I said, your oxygen is 80. He's like, I'll be fine. I said, no. I said, we've got to go back to the hospital. He goes, I'm not going back. And I was like, well, you're not going to lay here on my couch and die. You're going to go back to the hospital. So you can either get in the car or I will dial 911 to come pick you up. Because one way or another, you're going. You're not going to sit here and suffocate. So he, he didn't want to go. He was just, he's like, I don't want to leave. No, I mean, because I couldn't get him into the doctor before. So when I knew he was sick when he drove himself to the hospital the day before. And then and they so let him out. Right. And and then, you know, but, but they admitted him again on the night of the 26th. And on the 27th, from what I understand, he went right into the ICU and was intubated on the 6th of July. He was. That's fast. He was. It was very fast. I mean, he, he went from being on a regular COVID floor to being in the ICU in less than 24 hours to being on heated high flow, which just means that you're getting higher levels pushed into you faster than what normal oxygen can give you. I think it was like 40 liters or something like that. They had a BiPAP, a CPAP machine on them and then a BiPAP machine that wasn't working. And so finally on the 6th of, of July, his oxygen was so low and it was not coming back up that they had to intubate him. Wow. And then, and then I he, understand five days later, they put him on something called an ECMO, which is this extracorporeal membrane oxygenation device. Is that right? That is correct. And essentially that takes over for both the heart and the lungs by circulating the blood outside the body. So this is, it's a pretty serious situation. And that's less than two weeks. They're recommending yes. this last dish effort. I mean, what was it like yes. for you getting this phone call after just seeing him just two weeks ago being fine? Well, when they intubated him, I knew that was pretty serious. And then five days later, it was a Sunday morning, I get a phone call at 7.30, and I thought it was later than what it was, because I, I slept with my phone virtually on my chest in my hand, because I didn't want to miss, you know, I didn't want to miss a phone call. And I thought it was later than what it was, and I looked at the clock, at 7.30 in the morning, and it's a cardiac surgeon on the phone, and it's telling me, you know, we have to put him on this ECMO machine, or, you know, he's not going to be around. And I said... Okay, well, what if we don't do it? He said, well, if we don't do it, then he'll have maybe, maybe 24 hours to live. I said, well, I don't want him to die, so do it. And then at that point, I mean, I'm I'm hyperventilating. I can't see him. I haven't seen him. Because you weren't able to be with him, right? Right. So that was on the 11th of July. 
when they did that, they moved him down out of the COVID ICU unit down to the cardiac unit. They told me I could go up there, but I couldn't go in the room. So I went and I sat outside his hospital room, I think four or five hours that night. And did you it know, become kind of a, a daily ritual, just basically being outside, yeah. glass separating the two of you? Well, in, until the 15th of July. On the 15th of July, he became, I guess, not contagious for COVID anymore. So then they opened the doors and let me in at that point. So from the 15th of July until he left the hospital, I didn't miss one day. What did you do when you were able to uh, to be in that room for the first time after they let you in? <sighs> Cried. <laughs> Yeah. Cried hysterically, I think. Yeah. Held his hand. Nate, you were being kept alive by these machines. D did you have any sense that, that Brenda was there? I kind of felt her, yeah. I kind of felt her around anyway. I kind of felt that. But I just didn't know exactly what was going on. Brenda, did you think Nate could tell you were there? Oh, I think so, because every time I try and leave, his heart rate would go crazy or his blood pressure would go whack. And he knew I wasn't leaving until he settled back down. So he always got an extra hour or so out of me. Hmm. This is a tough question, but did you think your husband was going to die? Did, were, were you making those plans being like, you know what, I don't, I don't know if he's going to pull through this? Multiple times. Multiple times. There, there was good days. And good days in an ICU when someone is as critically sick as you can be and still be alive, that, that's hard to even describe or even comprehend a good day. But as long as he wasn't declining, I knew it was a good day. And there was days, I mean, he was bleeding out of every crevice you could bleed out of. That, that, that was not a good day. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, many people think COVID may just be the coughing in the lungs, but it, it definitely seems that it's a full body attack it, it was a full body attack i mean it's but you know some people get affected with kidney issues or heart issues and he wasn't riddled with those so i knew i just had to give him a little more time and th th there was skeptics at the hospital you know that we can't do anything else well, I mean, 91 days on the ECMO is, is nearly unheard of. I mean, the average for a COVID patient is, is two weeks with only a 50% survival rate. I mean, it, it might have been reasonable for a doc to, to give medical advice that, that the fight was, was over. I mean, did you hear that? Multiple times. Multiple times. 50% is a very conservative response when they give you the answers of what are what are the chances of survival when you're on a ECMO machine for a lung bypass? Realistically, it's probably about 25% or less chance of survival. So how did you keep your spirits up and your determination up, you know, going in day after day and just saying, we're going to get through this? How did you do that? I don't know. I just did it. I knew it was something I had to do. People thought I was crazy. They didn't understand. I don't understand it. I just did it every day. And it got to the point where, you know, I started asking the nurses, like when they would change him, I'd say, let me help you. <laughs> I've been taking care of this man for almost 25 years. Like I feel, you know, helpless up here. Like, let me help you. I can hand you a wipe. I don't necessarily, you know, want to take over your job, but 
you know. It sounds like the, you developed a real relationship with these nurses and, and the medical oh, staff there at Swedish. Tell me about that. I, did you make a strong bond with them? No, I did. I, I did. A lot of them sat and listened to me just ramble. A lot of them sat and, you know, they asked me to describe Nate as a person outside of the hospital. They asked me, you know, bring in pictures. So I printed out some pictures and took some poster board up there and taped them up on the wall. They were basically my rock when I needed to vent because no one else understood what I was going through. And they they didn't understand it, but they'd been taking care of patients. So they kind of, they knew, but they didn't, they couldn't really help me in the sense where they didn't know what I was going through like on a personal level, they could just help me on a medical side of things. Did you find that the nurses were were stressed or were, you know, overworked while they were with you because of all the patients that they may have been seeing in the COVID ward? No, I mean, he got one-to-one patient care. So, I mean, he was very fortunate. It was maybe two patients to one nurse at some times. There was days when they were in his room almost the entire shift they were there. They'd sit down and they'd have to come right back in because the machines would start going off. They basically focused on you and on Nate completely, it seems. It wasn't that they brought in the rest of, of their day in, into your hospital room. No, uh-uh. Not at all. I, I thanked him almost every day for doing what they do because without them, he wouldn't be here. Nate, in late September, you start to improve. Doctors take you off the ECMO and, and you eventually move to rehab. This is when your memory restarts, essentially, and in some ways your deal starts. You have to battle back from near death. What's that like? Well, yeah, I was just very surprised. And, and so I just say, well, thank God, because I was apparently gone. And so I just started taking one day at a time with the um, therapy so I can get better. What kind of therapy are you doing? I'm doing, uh, what is it? He's doing physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. Speech therapy. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah, and especially speech therapy. It's like starting over again in school. Puzzles and all the stories and stuff, listening. And you have to get going. Work out, try to get your legs moving. My legs was never moved. And so they were stiff, hurting. And so I had to start working that out. They had to start stretching me because I was not able to uh, do anything. I couldn't stand. And now I'm still doing it because of the home therapy. Still a long ways to go. Now, listeners may be wondering if you were vaccinated or not when you went into the hospital, but you both were unvaccinated. Brenda, what was your feeling about the vaccine? I wasn't against the vaccine. I've never been against the vaccine. I mean, I'm vaccinated with everything else that you're supposed to have in life. It's just a time thing, I think. You know, how, how do you fit that in life to go stand, you know, in a line or make an appointment? And it was it, it was silly, you know, on our part. I think if he would have had at least even one dose of the vaccine, he wouldn't have gotten as sick as he did. So are, are you an advocate now? Oh, absolutely. I've My entire family went and got vaccinated. Friends of his, cousins, relatives of his that were adamant. 
I mean, I'm not getting that vaccine. I'll just, I'll take my chances. I'm just going to take vitamins. I was like, okay, well, vitamins will only last you for so long. Like, you don't want to get this. This is serious. It's not, this is not a joke. You know, and not everybody gets as sick as Nate. But you don't want to take that chance to, you know, find out if you're going to get that sick. Nate, what about you? Um, going through all this and, and, and being unvaccinated, what, what are your thoughts on that? My thoughts is that, like, you know, that I would love for everybody to really take it seriously because, like she said, you don't want to be in my shoes at that, it's that time. And everybody might not make it. You know, I watch people that were on the same machines as Nate die. The, the fact that he's here, I mean, it's it's a miracle. But I, I don't I don't wish this upon anybody. Nate, Brenda, I I truly appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. And Nate, I I hope you continue to get better and and rest up and and hope you're moving around uh, again very soon. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Nate McWilliams and his wife, Brenda Bailey. Nate is home after 158 days in the hospital with COVID. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It was a sweltering hot Southern California day when one of the most performed Christmas carols of all time was born. Singer Mel Torme went over to his writing partner, Robert Wells's house, and found a pad of paper on Wells's piano filled with these phrases, chestnuts roasting, Jack Frost nipping, yuletide carols, and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Wells was apparently trying to stay cool on that hot day by thinking some wintry thoughts. Torme liked what he saw. 45 minutes later, the two had fleshed out the rest of the lyrics and the music. Later that day, Wells and Torme bequeathed the song to their good friend, Nat King Cole, who became the first black musician to record a hit holiday song. The 12 Days of Carols from Colorado Public Radio. More and more development is taking place in Colorado's wildland urban interface, that space between cities and untouched wilderness. And that's a concern for firefighters tasked with keeping those who move there safe. Jacob Ware is the chief of the Elk Creek Fire Protection District in the foothills outside Denver. Recently, a report in the Colorado Sun said potential new development in his district could keep him from adequately protecting the many homes and businesses there. Chief Ware joins me from a station in Conifer. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Uh, Good morning. The Elk Creek Fire Protection District is a combination department, meaning a mix of volunteer and full-time firefighters. Give us a quick understanding of the size of your department and the communities you protect. Of course. Um, We are uh, in the foothills above Denver, um, about 20 minutes to town. Um, We have uh, career staff, so permanent full-time firefighters that are EMS providers, as well as firefighters, as well as volunteers. And then we also have uh, career wildland firefighters as well. Our district is uh, 98 square miles with a population of right around 16 to 17,000 people. And that includes Aspen Park, Conifer, Pine Junction, parts of Pine, Evergreen, and Bailey. Isn't that right? Yes. Yep. We, we cross into uh, several different communities as well yeah. as into Park County from Jefferson. 
Now, we're seeing fire danger year-round here in Colorado. It used to be there was a fire season, but but it seems like that's changing because just a few weeks ago, you had a wildfire breakout right in your area, right? Uh, that was actually with one of our uh, neighboring districts, it, uh, the Inner Canyon Fire Protection District, which is one of our partner agencies, um, and we were involved with that via mutual aid. But yes, it uh, it, 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 it is, it, it's not ending we we are seeing fire season continue you know right now we got a couple inches of snow two nights ago and that's that's about all we've had we just haven't had the moisture that we used to get up here yeah how is that constant fire risk impacting your ability to protect your district well it's 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 a challenge um you know we uh we, we run uh, right around 1,300 calls a year. You know, we have fire-based EMS, so we provide the ambulance service as well. And it used to be fire season would run in the summer. And then, you know, once snow started falling, we could, you know, kind of change gears and work on other projects. And fire season's continual all the way through. So it's it's something that we we continually think about. And we we are always working on programs and projects to try and mitigate that danger to try and provide protection for our residents. But the number of firefighters, I believe, increases and decreases depending on the season, right, with your uh, department? Um, yes, it does. So our, our volunteers, that that number is fairly constant. Um, it's, it's a challenge to get volunteers, but uh, we also have seasonal firefighters. So during the summer, we have a wildland fire suppression module that has uh, seven seasonals and three, actually, excuse me, four permanents and six seasonals. And so the uh, seasonal firefighters during the summer, they're, they're up to 10. And then we also have a joint wildland division that we've put together with uh, Inner Canyon Fire Protection District that has a five-person fuels crew that works on mitigation projects. So during the summer, we're staffed up a lot deeper than we are in, in winter. Yeah. According to a CSU study, the acreage of the Wildland Urban Interface across Colorado was projected to grow by 300 percent by 2030 compared with the beginning of the 2000s. Are you seeing that happen in, in micro scale in conifer in your district? And, and, and has that impacted how you protect the area? Definitely. The, uh, you know, the, the foothills are a very desirable place to live. Um, I'm lucky enough to live here. I moved up here a number of years ago. Um, and, and we're seeing, you know, on average, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I want to say I think we have 25 or so houses being built right now and then a handful, then more uh, permits on the way. And, and some of the problems are most of the roads up here weren't designed for the amount of houses that are here now. Uh, they were designed a lot of years ago. So we, we have a lot of neighborhoods with one way in, one way out. We have narrow roads. So there, there are a lot of challenges up here. I mean, but I'm thinking people who move to that area understand that they're they're going to be living in a place that might have high fire risk and that there are some of those challenges. Is that what you're seeing? Um, yes and no. Uh, the, the demographic up here has changed, it seems, in the last, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. We, we've had a lot more people move up here from larger cities, from urban areas, and a lot of times they have the same expectation of services uh, that they have in those urban cities from urban fire departments. What do you mean? And we just don't have that up here. Um, you know, like, along like with in that, terms of there, the, the time, I'm sorry, what, what do you mean by that? Meaning that the, the, the wait time for, let's say once they call 911? Uh, correct. Yeah. We, we, our average response time is right around nine minutes, um, which is 
a lot low, a lot higher than it is in the city. Um, and then we also, with our staffing, you know, with, with multiple calls sometimes that, you know, we have to bring in mutual aid from other agencies. And then there, there are other challenges here with just the community itself. Water is a challenge. We, we don't have a lot of water up here. So water is either from a well or we do have several areas that have water districts, but there's not a lot of water. It's not like down in a city where a developer or an individual would build a house and pay a tap fee to tap into a water main to have a water supply for their house. If somebody's building a house up here, they're going to have to drill a well. And with wells, you have other challenges. Sometimes they don't work quite as well as others. So it's it's different than living in the city. And a lot of people aren't, they're surprised at that when they get up here. Yeah. Well, the story in the Colorado Sun highlights potential new residential development being planned in Conifer. So possibly people moving, more people moving there. I mean, 180 plus units, apartments as well. You wrote a letter to the Jefferson County Planning Board saying if, if there was a change in zoning to accommodate any new development, your department would be unable to adequately protect it. Why is that? Well, in you know, it. <clears throat> so we we. We utilize uh, NFPA, the uh, National Fire Protection Association, as as kind of our, our guiding our guiding document for the services we provide. And one of, one of the things we look at is uh, standard NFPA, NFPA seventeen ten and seventeen twenty. And NFPA talks about uh, population density. So suburban population density, as defined by NFPA, is five hundred to a thousand people per square mile. And based on that, that that dictates some of your uh, your, your, your response time and number of staff to respond. And so that's kind of what we were looking at. If having some development and not talking about that one specifically, but any development around here, you know, we, we have to look at that. So we, we have to try and provide the correct amount of staffing and response for that area. And it's, it's a double-edged sword because we, you know, there, there's not a lot of housing up here. The housing market is very tight. Um, but we also have a responsibility to our taxpayers to provide adequate service. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. So more people moving in, response time would increase. But, but I think on, on, with that said, with more people moving in, would you not have the potential to, let's say, hire more volunteers or more full-time fire staff? Um, yes and no. We, uh, there, there, there is an increase in taxes with, you know, more houses up here, but we've kind of hit a place where we, you know, volunteerism is declining across the country. Um, we have, you know, our, our volunteers, we have very high standards. Um, and with the demographic changing up here, it's, it's tougher to recruit volunteers. Um, we've become a bedroom community of Denver, essentially. You know, it, it used to be a lot more people worked up here, lived up here, um, the fire department was made up of people that lived up here and had the ability to respond during the day. Now, during the day, you know, well, pre-pandemic, before a lot more people were working from home, you know, at six in the morning, there's a rush hour. Everybody moved. Everybody was heading down to town. Six in the evening, everybody was coming back from town. Our peak, our peak business, if you will, times at the fire department are during the big activity times when people are out from usually about eight in the morning to, oh, seven or so at night. And at that point in time, it's, it's tough to get volunteers to come out and provide service on calls. And so, yes, we can, we can definitely hire more people, but it's also a challenge to hire because we're competing with departments down the hill. 
you know, and we, we can't pay the same wages. We, we pay competitive wages, but along with the housing market up here, it's hard for somebody to move up here to work. So most of our employees work down the hill as well. So the volunteers, they, they work in Denver and, and, and they'd have to come up type of thing. Is that what you're saying? Um, well, that, that, that doesn't really work very well due to the nature of our business. You know, we, we respond from the station, you know, we try and have rigs out the door within two minutes. So somebody responding from down the hill, it's, it's not a very efficient service model. So most of our volunteers, we require them to do shift work in the station, um, Hmm. just to try and get a more efficient response. And that's where the challenge lies in, um, having volunteers. If, if you don't have the availability for res- for volunteers to either respond from home or do the shift work at the station, it, it doesn't provide a very effective service. And that's kind of where, you know, the career staff comes in. Yeah. It was interesting in the, in the Colorado Sun story where the, the development possibility includes apartments. And I read that you just don't have the equipment to to help people because you don't have the equipment to get up to the apartments. I found that really interesting because of course you, you haven't seen apartments up there. Have you? Um, we, we have, uh, we have one multiple, um, multiple dwelling, uh, apartment building up here, but yeah, we, we don't have a lot of apartment buildings up here. We, we don't have a ladder truck. Most of our, uh, we, we have ground ladders. Um, a lot of our roads up here are not conducive for a larger ladder truck. And so that, you know, building height has been a challenge up here. Um, we, uh, it's, it's not ideal. We, we don't have the ability to reach a roof line higher than 30 feet with our ground ladders. So that, that adds a challenge for sure. And, and final question. I mean, there is land that will be developed in your district and more homes are going to be built in the area, maybe apartments too. And that means more people. Could there be a style and type of development that you could get behind, you know, meaning kind of a middle road between these massive developments and maybe single family construction. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, we, development is going to happen. That That's just what it is. And you know, what we, what we really, you know, as a fire protection district, we, we're not pro or con on development. We're not for or against development. It just has to be appropriate, sustainable development for the area. Uh, because that's, that's the nature of it. You know, it's, it's everybody, it's a desirable place to live. You know the uh, the wildland urban interface code. There there are a lot of uh, there there is a lot of development that that is appropriate for the area, and the homes that are coming up now. You know they as long as they're adhering to new codes, yes, it is appropriate. Um, it's uh, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a really double edged sword. It, it's going to be interesting to see how things move forward with development in the Chief. front range, not just here, but all along the front range in Colorado. Right. Chief Ware, thanks for being here. Thank you. Chief Jacob Ware leads the Elk Creek Fire Protection District, which includes the communities of Aspen Park, Conifer, Pine Junction, and parts of Pine, Evergreen, and Bailey. It's an unincorporated Jefferson County in the foothills west of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. Happy Holidays.
The Colorado Transportation Commission votes today on a new rule that's meant to limit the greenhouse gas emissions from cars and trucks. It would mean more money for climate-friendly projects like bike lanes and transit, but there's a concern it could also mean less funding for roads and highways. CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports. This gas station in Johnstown, Colorado, was busy on a recent afternoon. Just a few miles away, traffic was backed up on Interstate 25. Station manager Michelle Gardner drives that highway a lot. So you're up and down 25 a lot? Yes, every day. What's that like? Horrible. (laughs) It's so horrible. Ongoing construction is one reason for that, but so is rapid growth in northern Colorado. There used to be not much up here. I mean, there wasn't the shields. This gas station wasn't always here. It was just a dead highway on the way to Wyoming. More than half a million people now live in the Northern Front Range, an area that includes Fort Collins and Greeley. That's an increase of nearly 100,000 people in the last 15 years, and that growth is forecast to continue. All that growth is the main reason Interstate 25 is so congested these days. The State Department of Transportation has tried to keep up with that by expanding the highway where it can afford to. And people like Michelle Gardner think they should keep doing that. I think that it should continue being a three-lane highway after 66 um, and all the way to Wyoming because so many people travel. So it definitely needs to be bigger. But decades of research show that expanding highways typically leads to more traffic on them. And CDOT wants to reduce traffic to reduce climate emissions. A new CDOT policy would result in more spending on things like bike lanes and public transit, and possibly less money expanding roads. That's really ticking off people like Scott James. He's a Weld County commissioner. It seems to me when what we so desperately need, especially in northern Colorado, is roadways, we have a major department of the state now that is more concerned with environment than it is with what its primary function should be, and that's transportation. Weld County's southwestern corner is growing especially fast. It's about 30 miles north of downtown Denver. Big, suburban-style homes are still relatively affordable there. They're in sprawling subdivisions, where it's pretty much impossible to live without a car. I asked James why it hadn't been building more dense, walkable neighborhoods, where transit buses are more useful. Why not build Weld County in that kind of way? Uh, Because people don't want it, and they've proven that. Let the free market dictate how people live. Let people decide for themselves how they want to live. Because trust me, if the demand were there for those kind of compact, walkable communities, they would exist. In truth, walkable communities do exist in Colorado. It's just that most of them were built before World War II. Most new neighborhoods and commercial areas since then have been built for cars. And the state and federal governments enabled that by subsidizing highways to them. This policy would begin to shift that. Governor Jared Polis says this new policy is not meant to force people out of their cars, but rather to create more transportation options. If we can make our downtown areas, our commuting routes, pedestrian-friendly, bike-friendly, transit-friendly, there's a lot of folks who want to utilize those options to get to work in a more efficient way and a less costly way. CDOT officials say they do still intend to expand highways where they think it's necessary. Those expansions could just look a little different. Earlier this year, I toured a new bus station in the middle of Interstate 25, just south of Fort Collins. CDOT Project Director Chris Baysflug says transit buses now have to get off the highway completely to pick people up. But once this new station on the highway opens, that process will be much quicker. It pulls off into the median of I-25, 
lets passengers off, picks up new passengers, it accelerates and gets back on to I-25 in that express lane. That'll shave 13 minutes off the commute for bus riders. We could see more projects like this under the new proposal. Environmentalists would rather see CDOT stop expanding highways altogether. But Matt Frommer with the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project says this proposal is a move in the right direction. I think we know at this point that continued investment in car infrastructure, this reinforcing feedback loop, will not solve the problem. You'll still be sitting in traffic every year and will continue to damage the environment. Frommer says the policy will dovetail with the state's other big push to clean up transportation, more electric vehicles. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. The hurricane-force winds that whipped across the state Wednesday would have made the world's southernmost tree feel right at home. Harsh wind is redefining global tree lines in the southern hemisphere. That's where trees yield to extreme weather conditions and will no longer grow. This fall, we learned precisely where that is in the southern hemisphere. Scientists have identified the world's southernmost tree. Brian Buma is an associate professor of integrative biology at the University of Colorado, Denver. We spoke about the expedition in October. Brian, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, drum roll, please. Where did you find Earth's southernmost tree? It is a long ways away. It is on the southern headwall of Cape Horn, uh, Isla Hornos itself, which is the southernmost island in the Cape Horn archipelago. So extreme south of Chile. And that's the southern tip of South America. Southern tip of South America. Yeah, when you're standing on the top of that island, on the mountain that's the top of that island, it's nothing but water to the south with Antarctica only a few hundred miles away. Okay, what kind of tree is this? It's this tree, it's called a, the scientific name is Nothophagus betuloides, which is a mouthful. It's a called a Magellanic beach, uh, but it's not actually a beach tree. Just early European explorers had this habit of assigning common names they were used to to plants in the southern hemisphere. It's a uniquely southern hemisphere species. It's got broad leaves, like flat leaves, kind of about the size of a thumbnail, but it's an evergreen tree, mm-hmm. so it doesn't actually drop its leaves in the winter. What's the scientific name again? Nothophagus betuloides. I'm assuming it's a very hardy tree being being down that far, yes? It's it's pretty tough. This this whole genus is actually fairly tough. This whole group of trees called Nothophagus. Yeah, they have to put up a th- with a lot. It's not terribly cold down there. Um, Ilo Hornos, uh, the islands of Cape Horn, never really get that cold. It's much colder here in the winter. There's only a, about maybe 20 days a year where it even gets to freezing. Uh, much less stays cold, but it's incredibly, incredibly windy. So they they put up with a lot. Um, it's a pretty intense spot. So it's not so much the cold that's impacting tree line down there, but it's it's wind and things like that. Yeah, it's primarily wind in the southern hemisphere. That that way down in the southern tip of South America, you're into what sailors call the Roaring Forties and the Furious Fifties and the Screaming Sixties. There are these latitudes where it's it's constantly windy and. Uh, Ilo Hornos has winds over 45 miles per hour, about seven, eight percent of the time. So, you know, multiple mm. times a day, you're going to get wind gusts that high and over 120 miles per hour is not uncommon in any storm. So we had uh, hurricane force winds for two days in a row uh, while we were huddling in tents on that island just in the few weeks we were there. So with all that said, talk about this tree. What does it look like? Yeah, so the trees on this island, their their look is almost Dr. Seussian. It's it's a very bizarre place, and it's because of that wind. So if you get into a protected spot of the island, 
you'll get trees that can be pretty tall, like 20 feet tall, but they're all twisted. They're in like corkscrew shapes and it makes it real fun to climb. You can just kind of walk up these corkscrews that, and walk it on these branches that are all twisted from the wind. The southernmost tree is actually hanging out in a bit more of an exposed spot. So it's about 15 feet long, but it's only about waist, knee to waist height. So it grows up about two feet tall and then it grows perfectly flat along um, the surface of the ground or just above the surface of the ground. Um, for so another completely bent. <laughs> it sounds it's completely like, bent. completely it's like, bent. It's like a pipe cleaner bent at a 90 degree angle. Yeah. But these, these trees, they don't look like the Krumholtz trees like you'd find on the mountains around here where you get a whole, they look sort of like bushes. Yeah. These just look like trees. They're just bent over, which is, it's really so, strange looking. So you found this tree. W- what are you hoping to learn now that you've, you've been there and you've looked at it? What are you hoping to learn? Well, there's a, there's a couple reasons to do this expedition. One was scientific, and, and that calls back to what you brought up at the beginning, which is tree line. You know, global tree lines are really important places to track climate change because they are a easy, tangible sort of place where you can see uh, habitat and plant life and the environment shifting as the environment warms. Typically, they're limited by temperature so as climate you know increases increases in temperature you'd expect to see tree lines going up around the world mm-hmm. uh, you know increasing carbon but that's actually not what we see only in about 50% of tree lines around the world do we actually see a lot you know substantial forest expansion which is kind of surprising and so we need to figure out why these things move and why they don't so that we can better incorporate vegetation into our knowledge of climate change so that's the scientific reason there's also a communication issue. Uh, these sorts of big like climate change effects, like forests on the move, they're, they're kind of hard to communicate. You know, they're kind of hard to wrap your head around, especially, especially yeah. if you're a kid that hasn't been to tree line in Colorado, if you're not lucky enough to get up there. And so saying that is kind of abstract, but everybody's seen a tree. And so now we know literally the last tree and I can show folks on Google Earth. I can be like, you've all seen a tree, right? Well, this is the last one. And so we have this point that we can go back to and say the globe is on the move. You know, the globe is changing and it's got a it's got a nice visceral locality to it also from a storytelling point of view. I mean, it's almost like you're setting this baseline, like you really are saying, this is where we are now. Let's see where we are, you know, soon, right? That's um, exactly it. And I hope that baseline gets revisited, you know, past my time. You know, now that we know where it is, it's no longer limited to one study. You know, 50 years from now, some enterprising young kid today can can take an expedition down there and see what's happened. This big question in my head is, how did you even know where to look for this tree? Where did you start? <laughs> This it, this was sort of an Indiana Jones-esque expedition to begin with. There was a lot of um, digging up of old maps, reports from the 1700s and the 1800s of explorations in the sub-Antarctic islands, and then more recent work in the 40s and 50s. So there was a lot of archive diving and looking through old um, documentation to essentially rule out all the sub-Antarctic islands further south. So I started in Antarctica and essentially worked my way north saying, well, this island is covered with glaciers, so that one's out, you know, <laughs> and, and this island is covered, uh, you know, has someone's been there and it's nothing but grass. So this island's out. So were you and using satellites and things work... like that to uh, to figure this out? Satellites? satellites helped. Satellites could sort of narrow the range. But once you get to these areas where the trees are really sparse and only in protected areas, they don't they're not as useful anymore because you don't have the level of detail at such a high latitude. 
um, that you need. So satellites could help in ruling out some of the islands, you know, if it's all covered in snow. Uh, but they weren't useful in getting to the final island. That actually came with this breakthrough I found in a, in a Spanish language journal. It's published in Southern South America only, where one guy in the early 1980s had been to the island and reported finding trees. Because several other people had been there over, over the last several centuries and not said anything about trees. And so huh. we were able, or I was able to find, um, this guy's name is Pisano, uh, had visited about 40 years ago and said, no, no, there's a tree there. So we're like, well, uh, that's probably our spot. And so that's when uh, we were able to organize the expedition. So do you have a newfound respect for the botanists and sailors who, who did this work in the 19th century being down there at the Cape? Oh my gosh, it's unreal how, how intense uh, the landscape is. You, you're standing on this island and you're camping on this island and you really get the feeling that you're just a bug on the bottom of a river. You know, like like all the action is happening above you, just constantly rushing over you. You feel like if you stand up too tall, you're just going to blow blow into the ocean. The idea of doing it in a sailing ship is insane. I mean, it's it's very, very impressive. The list of people that have explored Ilo Hornos is very, very small. And that's not due to lack of trying. Like Darwin wanted to go there. He sailed around that area. And hmm. despite being there for a while, could never actually land. Like many, many people tried to get to that island and couldn't. Or could only or could only show up for a, for a moment or two. Real quickly, in a couple of seconds, how quickly do you think you're going to see things changing based on this tree? Well, the thing that's changing down there more than wind is, or more than temperature is wind. So as climate change shifts wind patterns, what we'd expect to see is fairly rapid movement in the forest. Um, death in some places as winds shift direction and new forest growing as, uh, as new areas become protected. So we expect to see pretty rapid growth, but also some movement in where you find the trees. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Brian Buma is an associate professor of integrative biology at CU Denver. We spoke about his expedition to find the world's southernmost tree back in October. When we come back, a cherished bracelet lost during World War II makes its way back to the Colorado veteran who never thought he'd see it again. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Gifts to CPR come in all shapes and sizes. One way to give is through a transfer of appreciated stocks, which may also come with tax benefits. The easiest way to make an impact with this kind of gift is to have your broker electronically transfer the stock from your account to ours. So please let us know if you do donate, so we can thank you. Learn more on the support page at CPR.org. 76 years ago, a teenager was fighting alongside other U.S. soldiers in Europe during World War II when something precious to him vanished. Now, at 95 years old, the Colorado veteran has been reunited with a bracelet from his past. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg tells us how it happened. Joe Escabel remembers buying that small silver bracelet in Fort Bliss, Texas, where he went through basic training. His signature, J.E. Escabel, is engraved on the front of the bracelet. And on the back, he used a nail to scratch his sweetheart's name. Lydia. Soon after, Joe was sent overseas. One day in 1945, in what was then known as Czechoslovakia, he discovered one of his bags was missing. And they stole my items that I had in the, in the double bag. The bracelet included. Joe reported it, but no one investigated. The soldiers were on the move. From Czechoslovakia back to Stuttgart, Germany. A hectic time with no time to dwell. 
Joe would be awarded a Purple Heart in the war. He later married Lydia, moved to Grand Junction, and had four kids. And I just forgot about it, you know. Until this October, when a stranger more than 5,000 miles away went for a walk in the woods with his metal detector. Petr Shvihovitz had hardly ever found anything of note. But that day, while exploring the site of a former Czech POW camp, he heard a beep. So I started to dig, and I found the U.S. pin. And after that, I found a silver bracelet on which I noticed that there was some kind of signature. Petr was sure the bracelet belonged to a U.S. soldier, but had no idea how to find him. All he had was a signature he could not read and a woman's name on the back. Petr cleaned the bracelet, took a picture, and shared it on a Facebook page dedicated to treasure hunting. The group came up with maybe 30 guesses for that last name. One made the most sense. Esquibel. So Petr started searching for the name Lydia Esquibel and found her obituary from 2019. He read that she had lived in a city called Grand Junction and that she was survived by her husband, Joe. A Czech historian helped Petr track down a document signed by Joe Escabel, and the signature was an exact match to the one on the bracelet. Again, Petr turned to Facebook, and he shared all that he had learned. And that got shared, and shared, and shared. I think hundreds were looking at this post. Eventually, it got to Elena Busavska. Born in the former Czechoslovakia, she lives in Grand Junction. And she decided to call Joe's family, despite being nervous about her English and how to explain the story. I had to come out of my shell and try, even if it's not perfect. Joe's daughter, Jolene Escabel Archuleta, remembers the shock of that call. It was like a dream. I, I couldn't believe it at first. But after a lot of red tape, and Petter getting the help of the U.S. Embassy and the Marines, Joe got his bracelet back, along with a service ribbon with a bronze star, an army lapel pin, and a Swiss coin via diplomatic mail. There's this video of the first moment he saw the bracelet again. Is mom's name on the back? Yeah. Yeah. Did you do that? Yeah, I did that. (laughs) Joe turns the bracelet over and over in his hands. Then Elena speaks. Yeah. It waited 76 years to, to, get, to back. get here, back to your. Joe's daughter, Jolene, is so grateful to everyone who helped get the bracelet back in Colorado, the Czech Republic, and beyond. I honestly think that my mom made this happen. Our faith is very strong. And Joe has this message for Petter. Well, I thank you many times. <laughs> The story was picked up by Czech media, and Petr says he gets recognized by strangers. Strangers who ask him to recount this whole unbelievable journey. Well, it is real. If I would see it in the movie, I would say, oh, what a nice story. I wish that would happen in reality, but this really did happen, and it is real, and it's not a movie. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters today with thanks to the team who makes it all happen. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, 
Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.